Our Father, we delight to come as your people and to offer you our praise. Our praise which really in one sense is, a, is not what takes place merely on Sunday morning, but is the culmination of what we've been anticipating all week. As we spend time in your word, as we spend time in prayer, as we spend time walking with you through the ups and downs and the different circumstances of life, knowing that when we gather together on Sunday morning, when we come corporately together as your people, we have the great privilege of entering as the the redeemed into the presence of our King, together to acknowledge that we are your people, together to acknowledge that you are our God, together to encourage one another and spur one another on to godliness, to comfort one another in the truths of your word and our forgiveness and our future in Christ. And Lord, we thank you for setting aside this day, for giving us this great privilege to open your word without fear. And we pray now, Holy Spirit, as we do each week, that you would come and be our teacher, that you would unfold for us the things that you have revealed for us in the word. And it is to that end that we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Oh, let's go ahead and once more open up our Bibles to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. Coming into this wonderful picture of the saints called out of the great tribulation with all of the holy angels standing around the throne offering to God worship. And I want to briefly introduce it this morning by reminding us in in maybe a different way, and we'll come to this in some form next week as well as we finish up this passage, of this great reality and this great truth, and that is that our view of the end, our view of the eternal future, our view of the end of this present age, uh, informs our worldview, and it is for us, the encouragement of our heart. And we really have two ways that that's presented to us in Scripture. We have it presented to us negatively, and that is to say that when we look at the world that we live in and when we think of the future, we have an awareness, as John said in his first epistle in chapter 2, that all these things are passing away. Or, as the psalmist in Psalm 73, when he was looking at the prosperity of the wicked and the relative ease that they experienced in life in contrast to the troubles and the turmoil and the difficulties that the righteous experienced, he, he said he was uh, almost senseless when he was thinking like this, but he was envious, as, as it were, until it says he came into the sanctuary of God, until he came into the presence of God, and it says then he realized their end. And his perspective changed. And he realized the great privilege of what it meant to be on God's side. And he said, Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you I desire nothing on earth. He needed his perspective to change. And his perspective changed by realizing the end of the wicked and the eternal blessedness of the righteousness at the end of this age. And we could give many, many, many examples because that is a common theme of Scripture is that we are encouraged and we walk wisely and hopefully and with spiritual strength in this world by realizing how temporary these things are and how eternal the life to come is. And so we are always compelled forward by the Holy Spirit through the written word to think of our future with Christ, to think of the end of our days, to think of the fullness of our salvation which is yet to be fully experienced uh, by us. And that is where Revelation 7 takes us in a really wonderful way. So many things to consider here. And some themes, even though we are taking a little bit of time on it, really we're only touching the surface of, and that's okay because we're going to come back to them again as we go throughout the book of Revelation, and particularly even as we come to the end of this last book of the canon. Well, in coming back into the passage this morning, let me read for us uh, verses 13 down to verse 17, and we will remember that after seeing this great vision of the multitudes worshiping around the throne with the holy angels, he enters into, the Apostle John does, uh, a conversation with an angel who then explains that vision. 
And that begins in verse 13. So read with me. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Those who are clothed in white robes, who are they and where have they come from? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God. And they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. And they will hunger no longer nor thirst anymore. Nor will the sun beat down on them nor any heat. For the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, over these last few weeks, we have been considering the different aspects of what it means for these to be before the throne of God and observations about these who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And we noticed at first, really picking up on that phrase in verse 15, that first phrase, the necessity of being cleansed by the blood of Christ. In other words, those who are before the throne are there for one reason and one reason only, as are any who are ever before the throne of God, and that is because they have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. They have been forgiven. They have been justified. They stand cleansed and forgiven in the atonement of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ. We noted as well, though, that those who are cleansed by the sacrifice of Christ have the certainty of being before the throne. It is an unshakable hope. It is a certain hope that every believer has. And it is the more that this hope becomes certain and real in the inner life and the mind of those who belong to Christ that we have strength to live for Him in this world, strength to battle sin, strength to be faithful in the midst of temptation and persecution, strength to persevere until the end. And it's a strength ultimately that comes by the Spirit, for we are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We noted as well, and that comes from the fact that they are before the throne of God. And then we noted the fruit of this being cleansed, and it is that those who are before the throne serve Him day and night in His temple. And we noted there as well last week that the fruit of being cleansed is serving worship, is worship that serves God. And that is really a restoration, as again we briefly considered, a restoration of what it means to be human, of what it means to be created in the image of God. We were created to serve God and that service was to be a reflection of our worship of God, of Him as the pinnacle, the climax, the highest affection of our heart. And that of course is embodied in the law, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So worship and service is what is restored in humanity to our rightful position, our rightful loves, our rightful place. And so when we think of the future, when we think of heaven, worship and service are the natural outflow of it. We will be serving in heaven. We will be serving before the throne. And as a side note there, that means then that the evidence of life here, of possessing this life of Christ, is that we worship and serve him in this world. But we stopped last week with, the, uh, with that little phrase there in verse 15, uh, right after that statement, is that they serve him day and night, that is unceasingly, it is the character of the life of those who belong to him both now and forever, Uh, And they serve him day and night in his temple, in his temple. And we stopped with that little phrase, in his temple. And for good reason, because it's worth considering on its own. We worship and serve him in his temple. What does he mean by this? What does he mean by the temple language? And that's what we will consider this morning, both this phrase, in his temple, and his spreading his tabernacle over them. Now, the key idea here is that they worship and serve him day and night in his temple is that of unhindered access to the presence of God. Unhindered access to the presence of God and of the Lamb. Free access to his throne, basking in his glory and delighting in his service. That captures the idea of the language of being in the temple or more specifically in his temple. In his temple. Now, again, however, what does he mean by saying this takes place in his temple? 
Well, in one sense, as we mentioned before, this is already anticipated, indeed expected, by the use of the term that's translated for us service or serving him. It is a a term that was most often used in the Septuagint. Again, for many of you remember, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, of the priestly service in the temple. It was that cultic service, that, that, that temple service where the priest took the sacrifices and, and so forth and offered them up according to the prescription of God. It was specifically that temple service. That's the term used there for serving. And so this, the idea here is, is that serving in the, the temple in the future in the presence of God with a priestly kind of service. This statement, just as a footnote, we briefly noted, is is captured and taken over by the Apostle Paul when he uses this exact same term to describe how we serve now in the New Covenant, not coming to the temple uh, or the tabernacle within the temple, and that is that we offer our whole lives our spiritual service. We offer it up as a sacrifice to God. We bring not an animal, the best of the flock, but we bring ourselves and the best of our lives as service to God, as offered to Him in service and worship. And he says that is your reasonable worship. It's your reasonable worship to God. It is the right response to the mercies of God. Well, that being said, however, let's consider this term uh, a bit more briefly. And there's quite a bit more here to draw out of it. First of all, let me note the term itself that's translated here, temple. Some might have the word sanctuary. It could be translated in either way. Uh, It comes from a word that means to dwell. And even as it was used in sort of classical Greek literature, it, was, it had the idea of to dwell, but even commonly the idea of temple, and it was used to refer to the place where uh, worshipers went to the temple of their God, who dwelled uniquely in whatever shrine or temple or whatever that they had to come and worship their God. That was the basic idea of the term. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew term, interestingly, most often translated, again, in the Septuagint, that would have used this word, Uh, The Hebrew term is one that was used almost exclusively to refer to the true temple of God, to the true temple of God, that that central place, that location, that structure where God's name uniquely dwelled and the people were called to come and to offer worship to their covenant God. Now, as I've noted often, we have that the essence of the tabernacle, the essence of the temple And the visible presentation uh, that was uh, symbolized in those structures was the fact that God dwelled among his people. That was the great shift that took place uh, with the forming of the nation and the establishment, again, of the Mosaic Law and the temple and all that went with it. It is that God dwelled among his people. He says this explicitly in Exodus, and let me remind you of these verses, uh, just listen. In Exodus 25, 8, he says, Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. In verse chapter 29, verses 43 and 45, he says, I will meet there with the sons of Israel, and later I will dwell among the sons of Israel and be their God. The tabernacle then among the nation of Israel was the central or the focal point at which the people were to fellowship with God, to maintain their fellowship with God, to maintain their covenant relationship with God. It was the place where God's name uniquely dwelled, where his presence was uniquely manifest. And so therefore it was the place that was dear to the spiritual life of the true Israelite, the regenerate, the regenerate Jew who loved God, who understood the covenant, who really was a beneficiary of this spiritual relationship that God held out to his people. And so it's not surprising then that this term was used to speak of the longing of the Israelites' heart where he wanted to go and to gaze upon the beauty of God. Let me give you just a, a few examples from the Psalms. He says in verse 4 of Psalm 27, he says, One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all my days to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. To behold the beauty of the Lord, 
So with eyes opened to see when the believing Israelite went to the temple of God, he saw there the beauty of God, the holiness of God, the grace of God, the covenant of God, the truthfulness of God. Everything that delighted the soul of a believer was there located in the temple. Prayer was directed to this temple. Psalm 28, verse 2, Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. And you can think of David, as you'll remember, who prayed towards the land of Jerusalem when he was in a foreign land taken away by Nebuchadnezzar in the land of Babylon. Yet when he prayed, his eyes were focused to that special and unique place. It's where the soul is satisfied and comforted. One more. Psalm 65, verse 4. The psalmist says this. How blessed is the one whom you choose to bring near to you to dwell in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. It was a place of prayer. It was a place of delighting in the beauty of God. It was a place where the soul of the believer was satisfied and ate its spiritual food and had its spiritual nourishment. Now in the New Testament, this idea of the temple, of God's unique presence, is epitomized in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the appearing of the Son of God in flesh. Now we'll come back to this again later. But let me take you to one passage that you're familiar with in John chapter 2. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to mention it briefly. But Jesus, after performing the first sign at the wedding of Cana, enters into this discussion, this interaction with some of the leaders. And in the midst of this interaction, after he had cleared out the temple, what I would hold is the first time he did it, and that he did do it again later at the end of his ministry. But after he cleared out the temple, saying, this is my father's house. It is a place that will be, is to be set aside in a, a holy place for prayer. He cleared it out. He gets into some interaction with the leadership. And in that conversation, he says, destroy this temple and I will build, rebuild it in three days. And raise it up in three days. And of course they thought he was talking about the temple present at the time. Which would have been Herod's temple. Still under construction. And they said it took 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to build it in three. Or raise it up in three days. And the commentary of John in verse 21 says. But he was speaking of the temple. The naos of his body. That's our term. Of his body. This is a tremendous shift then in the understanding of God dwelling among his people. Essentially it was that God's presence is over, that was in the temple is now overshadowed by this greater reality and that is the presence of Jesus Christ in whom the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form which is later noted by Paul in Colossians 2.8. So the appearance of Jesus embodies the reality represented and foreshadowed in the temple. God's presence dwelling among men, namely in the man Christ Jesus, who is the God-man. Now after the resurrection, ascension, and sending of the Holy Spirit, this reality is then extended to his people in whom the Spirit dwells. Jason prayed that in his prayer this morning. And so Paul then applies this same reality, the same imagery, our same term, to both individual and gathered Christians in the new covenant who are indwelled by the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit that indwelled in Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God that indwells individual believers and indeed indwells the gathered believers, the church, as the body of Christ. And again, let me just give you just a couple of instances of this. One is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. If any man destroys the temple of God, he's speaking here of the human body of believers, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy. Listen, and that is what you are. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Or do you not know that your body is a temple? Of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. In other words, 
You are the temple of God. You, God dwells in you uniquely as a believer in Christ, as one who is in union with Christ. And then he says it in these amazing words in Ephesians chapter 2, speaking of the gathered church. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And here it is. In him the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. There's our term. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So this idea of the temple, this idea of dwelling, this idea of the presence of God that was symbolized and manifested through the tabernacle and through the temple and then transferred over into the very presence of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and then extended out through Christ by the Spirit to every individual who is in union to Him and corporately together Christians who form the body of Christ. Who have the unique experience of the presence of God by the Spirit. Now, however, this does not exist, uh, exhaust the temple idea. It doesn't exhaust the temple idea, though it is a glorious reality of the new covenant in our present condition. Paul and Jesus also speak, using this very same term, of a future earthly temple that will be desecrated by the Antichrist. And we've looked at that before in Matthew 24, 15, 2 Thessalonians 2, 4. And actually... In Revelation 11.2, which we'll get to, obviously, eventually, where he says this in Revelation, someone said, get up and measure the temple of, the God and, and of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, for they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Now, we'll unfold the details of that down the road, of course, but the idea here is, is that it is a temple that is on the earth in the future. And the future at the time of the appearance of the Antichrist. And the prophets also anticipate a future eschatological temple when Christ will reign on the throne of David over a regenerate Israel. Again, we'll come to this in much, much more detail when we get to Revelation chapter 20. But that is unfolded in many places, but extensively in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48, when this future eschatological temple is described. But there's another way that the temple is spoken of, and this takes us more immediately to our passage, but encompassing all of these. And this is the idea of a heavenly temple. There is a heavenly temple. Now, this finds its roots in the Old Testament. God was always known not to dwell, though his presence was uniquely made known in the physical tabernacle and the temple, but that did not encompass the totality of God's being. You can remember Solomon's prayer when he dedicated his temple, the first actual temple, moving from the tabernacle to the temple, when he says, you do, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. Certainly you are not contained in this building. As glorious as it was among men, it was yet a structure made by men, and it could not contain the fullness of God. God is outside of that. And so really what was on earth was a reflection of heavenly realities, the greater realities, the truer realities. And so that's reflected in the Psalms. So Psalm 11, for example, 4 says, The Lord is in His holy temple, and the Lord's throne is in heaven, and His eyes behold, and His eyelids test the sons of men. Which is simply to say, God's true throne, His seat of His authority, the, the, the reality of His sovereignty is in heaven. It is outside of anything that man could build. The Lord sits in His throne in heaven. One more, Psalm 18.6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. And he heard my voice where? Out of his temple and my cry for help came before him and into his ears. So there was this understanding that the real presence of God, the real power of God, the real authority of God and the sovereignty of God resided not merely in a structure but in heaven. In heaven. The structure was a mere reflection as God was seen in his heavenly and known to be in his heavenly temple. And that's precisely the way that Revelation picks it up and emphasizes. This heavenly temple of God, this heavenly seat of his authority and of his sovereignty. 
Let me give you a few examples, and it might interest you to note that the use of this term here is concentrated by far mostly in the book of Revelation, this term naos for temple. But let me read you a couple of these passages. And just listen, Revelation chapter 8. Another angel came, this is the judgment that we'll soon be getting into, But in verse 3 of chapter 8, another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer and much incense was given to him that he might add to it the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. The golden altar, they are representing the golden altar in the presence of God in his heavenly temple. Chapter 11, verse 19. And the temple of God, our word, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his, in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. says it again in chapter 14, verse 15. He says, And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And again, judgment comes out in chapter 15, verse 5. And these things I looked in the temple of the tabernacle, and the testimony in heaven was opened, and the seven angels who had the seven plagues go forth. Again, in chapter 16, verse 1, we see the same imagery. And I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out on earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the temple then is most often represented in Revelation as this heavenly seat of God's authority from which he sends out his holy angels to execute his judgment upon the earth and uphold his justice upon sinners who remain on the earth. It is again a place of his sovereignty, is a place of his rule, a place of his power, and it is in the language of a temple, a temple, his heavenly temple. Well, that same idea is there when we come into verse 15 of Revelation chapter 7, where they serve him day and night unceasingly in his temple. It is a reference to the same heavenly temple, but not as a place of judgment, but delightful service. One noted on this then, that this is a picture of the whole of heaven as a sanctuary in which God's people are his priest. And it is this beautiful picture It is where the sovereignty and the presence and the glory of God is not for those who are there who belong to him, a place out of which his judgment comes, but where his presence is fully enjoyed. His blessing is known. Now, there are a few points I want to note here then before moving on. And just a few observations before we get to the second part of the statement. First is this. What implications does this have for us now? What implications does it have for us now? How are we to draw encouragement or what encouragement might there be now for believers who are in Christ who share with these believers the same salvation, though not yet having left this earth and entered fully or more more fully into the presence of God? Well, one implication is this, and it, it attaches to the idea of certainty, but maybe looks at it from a different angle. Uh, And it would come out of Hebrews chapter 9. And and I'm just going to mention these ideas briefly. Now we've looked at this before. In Hebrews chapter 9 through 10, the author is laying out for us the reality that what was foreshadowed and pictured in the tabernacle is now made real in Christ, in the appearing of Christ. And so he says in verse 11 of chapter 9, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. In verse 23, he says, therefore it was necessary for the copies of these things, of the things in heaven, to, in the heavens, to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices. For Christ did not enter into a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And the idea is this, that whereas in the earthly tabernacle, in the earthly temple, there needed to be a blood sacrifice that was brought, a confession of sin laying the hand of the worshiper on the animals, then the slaying of the animals and the handing over of that slain animal to the priest who then offered up that sacrifice according to the prescription for whatever sin sacrifice or 
other sacrifices that it was being offered. But he's saying no longer is that the case because of all of that was in anticipation of Christ who would actually enter into the veil, into the presence of God for us. And when he says here that the heaven, these had to be cleansed, but the heavenly things themselves is not saying that there was a cleansing of actual items in a physical temple in heaven. The emphasis here is to say that the way into the presence of God was made for those who belong to Christ through the cleansing that he brought as the great high priest. The worshipers, the people of God, were made ready to be in the spiritual presence of God because Christ has entered in for us. In other words, the realities of our heavenly dwelling symbolized in the earthly tabernacle were made certain through his cleansing death, his infinite life, and he is now in the presence of God for us. And listen to how he summarizes this in chapter 10, verse 19. He says, Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What is one encouragement we can take from this and be reminded of? Is that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are someone who has experienced the cleansing grace of God through faith in Christ, by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration, the gifts of faith and repentance, the union with Christ that comes about, the sealing by the Spirit, then you have been forever cleansed of your sin and have access to God. So in other words, the access that we are seeing here with these believers who are before his throne day and night serving him is the access that you have right now as a Christian. One of the great realities of our salvation that is not often considered in this way, though it's a major point of Scripture, is reconciliation. Being reconciled to God. In this reconciliation through the cross, through the blood of Christ, you as a believer have been given in a way that was unknown to all of the saints beforehand access to God's presence with, as he says here, A clean conscience. A clean conscience. You have been given access to the presence of God. And one of the great ways that this access is known and experienced is through prayer. Is through prayer. To neglect prayer is to neglect one of the greatest privileges of salvation. To neglect access and the free access, the free access with a clear conscience into the presence of God is to neglect one of the great blessings and comforts and strengths of our soul that God has provided for his people here. And we've talked about that before, the need to be in his word and the need to pray. That is one of the great blessings of salvation. It's where we draw much strength. You can remember this from the hymn, Familiar to us on Christ the solid rock. It says, When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. The great burdens of your heart, the great concerns of your soul, the great trials that you face, all find their answer, solution, and strength from God in the encouragement of our hearts when we go before him and into his presence with prayer. So he would say earlier in the writer of Hebrews, we have access to the throne of grace to find help in time of need. And so that is a great picture of what we see in the future is what we enjoy now. When we enter into the heavenly realm, leaving this life to the next, it's not entering into totally new realities, a totally new existence. And in one sense it is with, because of the fullness of the glories. But that relationship is the same. It's not a new relationship. The access that we have to God is not a new access. It's just a more realized access. It's just a fuller sense of what we have now. And we have that expressed in prayer. Let me make just a second observation. 
that while the rest of the passage reflects the language of Revelation 21 through 22, which we'll consider more next week, he's not yet referring to the eternal state here in Revelation chapter 7. Let me give just a few observations, and again, we'll come back to some of these next week. First of all, in Revelation, in the new, excuse me, in the new heaven and the new earth, in Revelation chapter 21, 22, you don't have to turn there, he makes this explicit statement, there is no temple. There is no temple in the new heavens of the earth because God becomes that for his people. But here, there is a temple. There is the temple idea which is, which is not a part of the eternal state. Number two, there is no indication that the tribulation is over at the time of this vision. The timing still anticipates the return of Christ, the great, great white throne judgment, the complete destruction of the present heavens and earth, and the union of heaven and earth. Thirdly, it's not clear that it's all of the redeemed of all time that spurred this great uh, interaction of, between the angel and John, but specifically those who have been identified as coming out of the great tribulation. And I would note, fourthly, that God spreads his tabernacle here over them, wherein the eternal state, at the, after the final destruction of this earth and the great white throne judgment, he says his tabernacle will be among them. It will be a union of heaven and earth. So for those reasons, I don't think here that we should see this as the future eternal state. This is a foretaste. This is a movement in that direction. This is a beginning of the taste of those glories that will be even more fully realized, even from the saints realizing here in their experience what they will know in the future. With that being said then, a third observation is that this is then a picture of the intermediate state of believers. The condition of those who die in Christ before receiving resurrection bodies. What happens to a believer when they die here? Well, we say they go to heaven. That's true, but that's not the final state. Yes, the presence of God is. Yes, being free from this body of sin, which I'll mention, but there is still more yet to come. There is the resurrection. There is the millennial kingdom. There is the final new heavens and new earth where we dwell with God forever, where there is no temple, where there is the, the final experience of the marriage of the Lamb, where there is no more sun, there, there is no more moon. There is only the fullness of light that comes from the glory of God. So let me just at least mention a few things to observe from this passage about the intermediate state. But I would note at first that there's not a whole lot said about the intermediate state in Scripture. There, there really isn't. But there are some wonderful things that we can garner for our encouragement. One is that when we die, when we leave this present earth, we will be immediately free from what Paul called, called the body of this death. The body of this death. There will be a separation of the soul from this corrupted flesh that, and the, that will then be left here, the corrupted flesh, and we will enter into the immediate presence of God. And while it's not yet the resurrected body in the final state, that's yet to come, every true believer in union with Christ, with Christ will immediately and forever be freed from this. And isn't this delightful? The presence of sin will be forever and immediately freed from the presence of sin. It will no longer harass you. I said, what can we pray for uh, this morning in uh, the membership, uh, understanding membership class? And there was, <laughs> independently, the single same request, sanctification. Sanctification, to be more like Christ. To be more like Christ. And that is the longing of our hearts and here, this is by this, the tradition of these who have gone before us, it is shown that they are before the throne of God in his temple with joy and they are not consumed because the body of this death has been removed. Number two, notice this, that we will have an immediate experience then of the sight and the presence of Christ and the Father with a glorious fullness, a glorious clarity that we can only imagine this side of heaven. It's immediate transfer into the full and wonderful experience of the presence of Christ. And we see this even in the longing of Paul's heart. Philippians 1.23, let me just give you a couple of passages. He said, I'm hard pressed. He says, 
uh, I, I, for me to live to Christ, Christ and to die is gain. And he says, and I, I don't know which to choose, whether to live or whether to die. He says, to stay on for your sakes is more necessary. But he says this in the midst of it. He says, I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. In 2 Corinthians 5, 6-8, he says this, Therefore, always being of good courage, and this is right after, if you'll remember 2 Corinthians 4, where he says that this outer man is decaying, but our inner man is being renewed day by day, where we're looking at the things not which are seen, but the things which are not seen, which are increasing to an eternal weight of glory for those who know Christ and who are serving them. And then he goes into this statement, a little bit after that, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, he says, Therefore, always being of good courage. What goes before that is Paul saying, and I don't want to be unclothed. I don't want to be found naked. He's not talking about his physical life. He's talking about, I, I ultimately am longing for my resurrection body. I'm ultimately longing for that. But in the meantime, what I'm longing for and what can be known immediately is the presence of God. And so he says in verse 6, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. He's saying, and that's really what drives is knowing that I will be at home with the Lord. And it will no longer be by faith, but it will be by sight. A full sight of this glorious vision of Christ. Let me give you one other passage. In John, Jesus alludes to this in John 11. You remember the conversation when he was going to, before he raised Lazarus from the grave. He has this conversation. He says, he makes this statement. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? What does he mean by that? He who believes in me will never die. What he means is that the one who possesses eternal life, the one who possesses and has been brought to experience the life of God, which is essentially this eternal relationship with God in the Son, death does not break that. It merely is entrance into a fuller experience of it. When a believer dies, one who is truly regenerate, they shed this earthly body of death and immediately, in an unbroken sense, enter into even a fuller expression of what is already possessed here and tasted only in a, in a minuscule and a small way, but will be experienced in a greater way in his presence, and that is eternal life. And so it is completely right to say that the believer who dies in Christ never dies. They merely move on to a greater experience of the glory of God in Christ. I'd note again a thirdly about this intermediate state. Though not having the resurrection body yet, our state will be conscious, corporal, and active. Now, we can't say a whole lot more than that, but notice what they are doing here. They are serving him day and night. It is not a soul sleep that they're in. It is not some comatose state, but those who die and go immediately into the presence of God in Christ are active. They are conscious. You can remember the souls that were before the throne calling out for vindication for their name or, for, or justice from God for those who had killed them in Revelation chapter 6 and those other examples. But it is to go immediately into the presence of God in a conscious state, in some kind of corporal state. We're not floating beings, but what that looks like, who knows. We see a little small glimpse of that on the Mount of Transfiguration when Moses and Elijah were speaking with Christ. There was some form they had that was recognizable. So there is some recognizable form, some sense of a corporal form that is not yet the final resurrected form. You might even think of angels who took on bodies in the Old Testament, such as visited Abraham and so forth. Who knows? We don't know exactly. But we do know that they are alive, they are active, they are conscious, they are freed from the body of sin, they are in the presence of God, and they are actively serving Him, and so it will be for all of us. And lastly, note this, it will be entrance into a place of profound and eternal comfort and rest. In short, the saints who labored on earth are upon death immediately at rest in the Lord. 
Let me give you just one note here in Revelation 14. It says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Their deeds that gave evidence of a transformed life. That is the end. If you are a believer in Christ, this gives us a small taste of what awaits. This is why in Christ that tool of Satan that he held over men, the fear of death, is removed. O death, where is your sting? It's been defeated. The sting of death is sin. But Christ has overcome sin. There now is only for the Christian in the idea of physical death, the great hope and glory, even anticipation of being with Christ whom we love in this immediate, immediate transfer into his glorious presence. Thank God no purgatory. No thousands of years of burning off sins committed after regeneration on this earth and that nonsense. There is an immediate realization of the presence of Christ. And, and one thing that I would want to emphasize for us here is we, as, we, as we say that and as we think about the future of, of being immediately in the presence of Christ once we leave this world, it's not the attaining of something new. It's merely a fuller expression of what you already have. If you are in Christ, you have eternal life. You have the indwelling spirit. You are in union with Christ. You do have a taste of this future home. It's just, again, it's in small portion because of this corruption of our flesh. Because, again, as Paul said, this body of death. It's merely a realization of what we already taste here in our best moments and our closest moments of nearness to Christ. It's merely that unending, that unhindered. And that is the great hope that we have. Now he says there next, speaking of the great comforts, well actually let me, thought of this, this psalm, we love it. It's Jesus I my cross have taken. He says, haste thee on from grace to glory we sing, armed by faith and winged by prayer, heaven's eternal days before thee, God's own hand shall guide thee there. Soon shall close thy earthly mission. Soon shall pass thy pilgrim days. Hope shall change to glad fruition. Faith to sight and prayer to praise. That's our hope. And it's going to be filled with comforts. Comforts that are going to meet the deepest longing of our soul. And look what he says next. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. He'll spread his tabernacle over them. I'm going to introduce it here and then we'll pick it up and finish next week. This is a wonderful statement that draws us to consider the intimacy and the nearness of God that he promises to those he has reconciled to himself in Christ. It's a great statement of comfort, spiritual intimacy. And he uses another rich and a full term here to describe this future nearness of God to his people. It's the one that is here translated tabernacle. He will spread his tabernacle over them. The root idea of the the noun anyway, he uses a verb here. But the, the idea of the noun was of the tent, the dwelling place of God with his people in the Old Testament. That he was near. That he was near. It has the idea of presence and the idea of protection. It's a wonderful, wonderful picture. But we're going to have to pick it up there next week. As we consider this great glory of what it means for God to spread his tabernacle over his people. To be a dwelling place for his people who will see him face to face. And it is our hope, and it is a hope again that we each week are pointed to through the elements of the Lord's table. Remember the great word of promise that God gave to us. I will not eat and drink these elements with you again until when? Until I do so in my kingdom. Until my kingdom. When I, when I return, Paul says it this way, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul anticipates this way. 
In 1 Thessalonians 4, and Jesus reminded and encouraged his own disciples in John 14 that I will come again for you. Paul says, we will meet the Lord together in the air and forever be with the Lord. Forever be with the Lord. He told and reminded his disciples in John chapter 12 when he said we have to give up everything. He says, where I am, there you will be. Those who follow him and those who are his disciples. That's always the encouragement and that's what he reminds us of in this table. We should see a connection to his return. We should have a greater sense and awareness of he who established this ordinance for us did so so that we would be reminded he's coming again for us. He's coming to receive us. He's coming to bring us into the fullness of what he has accomplished for us in his salvation and that is to be in, with him forever. And so with that in mind, let's pray and then the men will hand out the elements and we'll remember these things together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us a sight of things that we could not see or know apart from Revelation. But they are revealed to us by your spirit, these glorious and wonderful realities. They are recorded for us in your word, which you have preserved for us, that you have given us to know you spiritual eyes to see, spiritual ears to hear all that was written down for our encouragement, for our hope, for our instruction, for our perseverance. And this is embodied as well in these symbols and these emblems that point us and remind to this future and, and remind us of all that you have accomplished for us, that we have access to you, we have even now the great privileges of belonging to you and sharing in your life. Remind us of these things. Encourage our hearts by grace. Teach us to look not at the things of this world, but the things above, O Christ, where you are seated at the right hand of God. Encourage us to live for you in this world, to not grow weary in the battle with sin, but to have perseverance, to march on, knowing that one day there will be rest from our battle and rest from our labors when you take us home to be with you. And so to that end, O oh Lord, we pray. Amen.